Now, the Lord Jesus Christ had been with his apostles in Jerusalem and they uh, shared together the Passover feast, which then morphed into the Lord's Supper in that upper room. It was on that occasion that Judas, as the betrayer, was exposed. Once he'd been exposed, he fled from the room. Once the meal was concluded, uh, Jesus gets the remaining 11 and he makes his way out of the, the, the city precinct, as it were, to the Mount of Olives, and on the slope of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. And the reason why he went to Gethsemane, of course, is because he knew that that's where Judas Iscariot would come looking for him. Uh, The time of his betrayal was at hand, and Judas went looking for him in the garden because he knew that Jesus liked to frequent the garden. Uh, But there's more to the Garden of Gethsemane than simply a convenience, as it were, In the purposes of God, the Garden of Gethsemane is full of significant uh, symbolism. Now, the word Gethsemane is made up of two Hebrew words, which combined mean oil press. Now, olives, sorry, uh, olive press, I should say, or oil press. And um, it was a place where olives had been squashed and pressed for their oil. If you know anything of that process, They were placed under a a large millstone with a beam across it and a a horse would pull the beam and the the olives would be ground to pulp. That was the first stage. The second stage was the the, the putting on of further millstones and then just the sheer weight of these millstones. The pulp was on like a basin kind of stone. The oil would run out and it would be caught in clay vessels underneath. We might say that it was something of a, of a violent process in order to extract the oil out of the olives. And surely there is something of a, a, sim, a, a symbolic correspondence to what the Lord Jesus Christ was going to go through. He too was going to be crushed. The weight of the guilt of his people was going to come upon him and then the, the weight of his father's indignation and wrath was going to come upon him. His very life, as it were, was going to be squeezed from him, was going to be taken from him in order that we might receive the forgiveness of our sins. But to add to this, surely there is symbolic significance in the fact that Jesus begins to fulfil the Father's will with regards to the atonement in a garden. Go back to the Garden of Eden and what do we have? We have one who represented us. He too was given the will of his father and he failed. And because Adam failed in the garden, we are all sinners. There were catastrophic consequences because Adam failed to fulfill God's purposes in the garden. Well, now we have a second garden. And there is a sense in which we can say we have a second Adam and he's a second Adam because he also represents us. But whereas the first Adam failed, The second Adam didn't fail. He was able to embrace the will of God. Though he faced the the terrible torture of the cross and all that that involved, and that's what's before him, he was able to pray, not my will. He didn't naturally want to go to the cross. Who would? Not my will be done, but your will be done. And as the second Adam, so he has secured salvation for his people. So there's a great deal of symbolism and richness, even by virtue of the fact that Jesus went there and this is where the betrayal was going to take place. This is where he begins to feel the weight of his father's anger coming upon him. 
But this morning, we're going to look at Gethsemane from another angle. I want to consider the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane as an example for us to follow. Now, we won't experience anything like, nothing even remotely like what he experienced in Gethsemane. It was a unique experience for a unique man. Sometimes people use the expression, you're going through your Gethsemane or I'm going through my Gethsemane. That's a complete falsehood. We shouldn't speak in those terms. Only Jesus Christ experienced Gethsemane. Nevertheless, we, go, we do go through dark times. We go through confusing times. We go through times of acute pain. And I would put it to you that there are some uh, very good principles that we see here in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ as he went through this very dark hour, the, the hour of his degradation that we can apply to ourselves that hopefully will be of use to us when we go through some of life's difficulties. So I want to make three observations then in terms of Christ being, uh, being an example for us. Let's note firstly, Christ needed to pray. Christ needed to pray. Verse 32, then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Now, if Christ is our example in anything, surely he is our example in prayer. There's probably not a person in this room who wouldn't say that Jesus is not our example. We always refer to Jesus as our example, but sometimes the question is, in what way is he our, is he our example? He lived a life and, and did certain things that you and I will never do. There is a sense in which in some ways, he is quite remote from us as the son of God. And yet in other ways, we, we do find principles that we are to emulate. And I'd put it to you, if he's our example in anything, he is in the first place our example in prayer. And if you read through the life of our Lord Jesus in the gospel records, one of the things you'll discover is that he is frequently noted by the authors with regards to his prayer life. How often does he dismiss the crowds, having spent time with them and ministered to them and answering their questions and, and healing and preaching and so on? He would dismiss the crowds and he would take himself away on his own into the mountains in order to seek the face of his father. We are told that he would rise early in order to pray. We find that before he had to make important decisions, such as the appointment of the 12 apostles, what did he do beforehand? He spent the night in prayer. Before he engaged in specific periods of ministry, we find that he prayed. The Lord Jesus Christ was eminently a man of prayer. And now as he enters into this very, very difficult hour, in fact, I am of the opinion in all of the reading that I've done over the years, it's actually in the garden that Christ, in a, in, in a sense, formally becomes our penal substitute. It's in the garden that he is imputed with our guilt and he begins to feel the wrath of God coming upon him. And that's expressed in the language. The, the language that he uses here, the sermons in the language themselves... Um, we don't have time to go into all of that. So here he is in the hour of his greatest need as, as he faces the cross and he's beginning to feel the weight of his father. What do we find him doing? We find him praying. He prayed, of course, in order that he would fulfil his father's purposes. We know from Luke's account that as he 
calls out to God that uh, the Father, God, sends to him an angel and we are told that he was strengthened through the angel. The Lord Jesus Christ, though he's the Son of God, he, he didn't rely upon his own gifts or his own strength or his own wisdom. He prayed continually to God that God would uphold him, that God would enable him to fulfil his ministry, not just at this time, but even before this time. In all kinds of ways, he prayed. But let us not suppose that he prayed simply to get the Father's help in order to fulfil ministry, though that's true. Jesus prayed because prayer is a means through which he had fellowship with his God and Father. Prayer is a means through which we have fellowship with our God and our Father. I want to put it to you this morning that we don't only pray because we have needs, though that's certainly true. We also pray because to pray, just by virtue of the fact we lift up our voices to God, that is a means of grace. Just the act of prayer itself is a means of grace. And yes, we bring specific needs and our desires to God, and often he will bless those needs and desires with the answers that we, that we, we, we would like. Yet you know, often the strength we need, the encouragement that we need, the help that we need comes simply from the fact we come before him to praise him. We come before him with thanksgiving. We come before him with our confessions of sin. Simply lifting up your voice to God day after day, calling upon him in all kinds of ways is a means of grace. Not just because we have specific needs and he meets those needs. Jesus was a man of prayer because he engaged continually with fellowship with his father. I have a friend who is facing really very, very difficult situation. And he's been in this difficult situation for quite some time. And he said to me a little while ago, he said, as it began to unfold, he said, I was continually praying that God would intervene, that he would change this set of circumstances. And he said, the longer I prayed, he said, over time, he said, I felt that my prayers began to change. He said, I, didn't, I wasn't so much focused on the circumstances. He said, but I began to see the ways in which God had blessed me and the good things I ought to be thankful for. And I began to think more about my, my life before God, not just the circumstances. He said, I've been quite consumed with the circumstances and they are bad. It's a bad situation. He said, through all of this prayer, he said, what I've discovered is the circumstances haven't changed and the circumstances are still the same and it's not good for him. He said, but I've changed. He said, I'm not so much praying about the circumstances anymore, though he still does that. He said, I spend far more time just praising God, thanking God, reflecting upon what the Bible has to say to me as a believer, confessing my sins. He said, I'm far more concerned with my godliness before the Lord than simply him changing these unfortunate circumstances. He said, the circumstances haven't changed. He said, but I've changed. He said, I feel I have a closer walk with the Lord. He said, I feel that I love the Lord more now. And yet the situation is as bad as it's ever been. Jesus was a man of prayer. And we also need to be people of prayer.
And so as we look to Christ as our example, if he found the need to pray and he was characterised by prayer, how much more so should you and I? Now, there's a couple of things in relation to this specific prayer I want to draw to your attention. Let's note firstly his physical posture, verse 35. He went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed. And so such was the burden that he, he bore in the garden. We're told it, it, it took him to the ground. He went to the floor in order to pray. And we need to understand the language here doesn't mean that his legs became like jelly and he collapsed as an involuntary act. What this means is that Jesus himself cast himself before his father. He pushed himself to the ground as well. He lay himself down before God. He didn't just swoon. He didn't faint. He threw himself down at the feet of his father. Now, he does this because it is a posture of reverence and submission and dependence. He's demonstrating something in terms of his body language. You know, posture in prayer does say something. The Bible often makes reference to our posture in prayer. It speaks of bowing. It speaks of prostrating ourselves. It speaks of kneeling because there is some significance in terms of how we present ourselves to God. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying in a comfy chair. A man once said to Spurgeon that he was struggling in his prayer life and couldn't pray for very long, and Spurgeon asked him where he was sitting, and it was on a bench or a piece of wood or something, and Spurgeon said, well, there's your problem. He said, go and sit in a comfortable chair. It'll make it much easier. Um, There's nothing wrong with praying in a comfortable chair, nothing wrong at all. But there are times when perhaps it's not appropriate to pray in a comfortable chair. Perhaps there are times in life when we need to get on our knees. Perhaps there are times in life, maybe when we've been dealing with with ingrained sin, and perhaps it's appropriate to lay ourselves face down in the dirt. The idea of bowing in the Bible is just to put one's head down. Not necessarily the whole body, but just to hold one's head. Maybe there are times in life when we are dealing with guilt or or sin, or we are deeply anxious over a a particular matter, whatever it may be, perhaps on some occasions the comfy chair isn't overly appropriate. And here, the Lord Jesus isn't comfortable. He lays himself down before God as an expression of the, the deep anguish that he's going for. It's an expression of his submission and his dependence and reverence before the Father. But along with that then, I want us to note his spiritual posture in verses 35 and 36. He went a little further, fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. I'd suggest that his physical posture was one of submission because it corresponded to his spiritual posture. Not my will be done, but your will be done. We can rightly bring our needs and our desires before the Lord. Paul tells us that we are to cast all of our burdens upon the Lord 
And uh, God is interested in the whole of our lives and we can bring needs and desires and we can do so with confidence, we can do it freely, but our prayers must always, must always be prefaced by not my will be done, but your will be done. And this means that we are committed to the will of God irrespective of the outcome. Your will be done means that God's purposes are more important than our desires. It means that we will worship, serve, obey, rejoice and be content irrespective of what the outcome is. Yes, we, we would like God to do this particular thing for us or we would like God to change our circumstances and the prayer might be legitimate, it might be a good prayer, yet we have to recognise that our prayers are not always according to his will. What we find here is an attitude of heart. When Jesus says, not my will but your will be done, this is no mere platitude. It's not just a nice way of, of closing the prayer off. These words are, are full of spiritual significance. You know, one of the things that every Christian will discover and has to discover in life is that God is not going to give to you everything that you want. Your desires and requests may be legitimate, they may be good, wholesome, nothing wrong in what you are asking for, but God specifically will not give you the things that you have requested because they are not according to his will. An older man in the ministry, a good friend actually, he's now pushing on towards 80 and he said to me on several occasions when we've had discussions, he said, Andrew, there are things that I've been praying for for decades things I've been praying for daily for years and years and years, he said, and as yet my prayers have not been answered. And he said, it doesn't look as though they will be from what I can tell. God quite deliberately will not give to you everything you want, whether it's marriage or a child or a particular kind of job or health or, or with regards to finances, we will all in some way have struggles in life and we will from the heart have to pray, I would like this. Oh God, this would make my life so much easier. But nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. And it must be said in that spirit whereby we are able to rejoice and find contentment and we will commit ourselves to his purposes irrespective. Jesus prayed this prayer face down in reverence and submission, knowing what was coming before him. Jesus knew that he was going to experience unimaginable agony. Spiritual, emotional, physical. We, we sometimes play down the physical side of crucifixion, actually. And I've, I've read good men writing on Jesus' crucifixion with regards to the physical angle, almost as though it was no big deal. Well, there's been lots of martyrs in life. Lots of people die for a cause. That's a load of bunkum. That's rubbish. It was a big deal. Crucifixion was a very, very big deal. It was extremely painful, extremely painful. And the, what Jesus was going to go through exists on many levels, physical, spiritual, emotional. And he knew what was before him. He's beginning to feel the weight of it come upon him now. 
not my will be done, but your. If there's any other way, can this, can this cup pass from me? If it was at all possible, which of course it isn't, not my will, your will be done. As these words left his lips, they were words uttered in worship and adoration. Knowing God's will, he was determined to see it through. So the first thing that we see here is that Jesus was a man of prayer, characterised the whole of his life, and we see a particular kind of prayer here where he is submitted to the will of his Father. Let's note, secondly, that Christ looked to the support of friends. Christ looked to the support of friends. Verse 33, And he took Peter, James and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Now, all of the apostles entered the garden with the Lord Jesus. Of course, there's only 11 of them now. Uh, Judas has been exposed and he's left the group. So Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives with 11 of his disciples. And when he's in the garden, he then takes three, Peter, James and John, and they go a little bit further uh, into the garden with him. When we look at the life of Jesus Christ, what we see is that he moved within different circles of people. Okay, we see Christ with the crowds. I was going to mention something of this to the children. Jesus always had time for people. Uh, he went into people's homes. He ate with them. He prayed for them. He did good to them. So much so that uh, he received a lot of flack from the Pharisees who accused him of rubbing shoulders with sinners. Now, let us not suppose that Jesus was unwise and kind of hung out in taverns and all that as it's sometimes presented. That's not true. Um, but he certainly had time for people. He ministered to people. But within this great spectrum of the crowds, there were 72 disciples who were commissioned by him to go out into the world and preach. And he related to the 72 in a different way than he related to the crowds, even people in the crowds who were converted. We might say that the 72 were associates or even colleagues. Of course, we know, don't we, he sent them out two by two to go and minister the word. And so he had a rapport and a relationship with the 72 in a way that was more intimate, more involved than with the crowds at large. But then, of course, within the 72, we find 12. And they regarded as his friends. And they weren't just associates or colleagues. The 12 of them spent every day of three and a half years in his presence. They ate with him. They watched him. They spoke with him. They questioned him. He specifically taught them things. The 12 were on a different level to the 72. But then within the 12, what do we find? We find three. And the three are always mentioned, aren't they? They're often mentioned together and they are mentioned as Jesus' closest friends, Peter, James and John. Here at this difficult time, he goes off specifically with the three. And what we see here is that the Lord Jesus Christ was not aloof and detached from people as though he was on some kind of higher spiritual plane. Though in a certain sense, as the son of God, he was on a higher spiritual plane. But we don't find him detached. We don't find him standoffish. Um, we don't uh, find him aloof or remote from people. 
He was the son of God, but as the son of man, he also benefited from the friendship and camaraderie of other men. And so as he enters into his passion here in the garden, he doesn't do it alone. His friends obviously couldn't shoulder the responsibility. They couldn't take upon themselves the guilt or the anguish. Nevertheless, he wanted them to be with him. Now, the picture is something like this, just so we can kind of visualise it. So he takes the 11 to the garden. He then goes off with three, Peter, James and John, but he leaves them. He goes a little bit further on his own. We're told in one of the other Gospels that it was just a stone throw away. wasn't very far because they had to see and hear what he was going through. They had to record what they saw and what they heard. That's how we have the scriptures. But more than just that, more than just for the record that we have in the Bible, Jesus wanted them there with him for their fellowship. Seeing and hearing what he was going through, they could pray for him. And that's what he expected of them. He expected them to pray. And then having thrown himself on the floor and cried out to God with all of the the pain and the anguish when he returned to them, hopefully then they would encourage him with words of love and, and, and just basic words of encouragement and camaraderie. There is a reason why Christ wanted the three with him. Though they couldn't shoulder the responsibility, in terms of fellowship, they would be there with him to pray and to support and to encourage. Their presence was important to Christ and that's why he took them further than the others. Now, surely there is a valuable lesson in this for us with regards to the importance of friendship. Now, we as Christians need more than just friendly acquaintances. We need close friends. It isn't necessary to have dozens and dozens of close friends. In fact, I don't think you can have dozens and dozens of close friends. And all this, I don't use Facebook and all of these things, but people have all of these friends, don't they? And there's thousands of them when in fact, you know, they know three or something like that. They're not friends. They just click a button, don't they? Um, we, we don't need lots of friends, but we do need a few friends. We need some good friends, some close friends. And uh, that's what we see here in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he opens himself up to these three in a way that he didn't to the others. And uh, we need some close friends in life that we can open ourselves up to. People that we can bounce things off, people that we can share things with that we might not feel comfortable sharing with others. But, you know, we may need to get things off of our chest. We may need advice. Christ is a man's man, and yet he wants his friends to be with him, to be at hand as he enters into his suffering. It's a basic biblical principle. The Bible makes much of friendship. It has a lot to say about friends and the significance of friends and relationships. Galatians 6 tells us that friends bear one another's burdens. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfil the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? It's the law of love. We bear one another's burdens. We enter into the plight of our friends. We offer a shoulder to cry on. We offer a hand to help. A friend doesn't look on 
seeing one that they care for with indifference. They try to apply themselves to the situation and do what they can to help. Friends pick one another up. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labour. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. There's a very good reason why Jesus sent the 72 disciples out two by two, in order for mutual encouragement, in order to strengthen one another when one loses his way, as it were, when he gets a bit downcast, the other is there to help him. If one falls down and he's on his own, who is there to pick him up? Friends build one another up. Proverbs 27, verse 17. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. We need people with whom we can discuss things, throwing ideas around. And surely this idea of of iron sharpening iron also includes the idea of rebuke. The Bible makes much, doesn't it, of a friend rebuking a friend and the value of that. I'm not talking about going around and just finding fault with people. Well, you know, you need to listen to my rebuke. We're talking about rebuke coming in a gracious way and, and a loving way. The kisses of an enemy don't mean anything. But the rebuke of a friend delivered the right way is a highly valuable thing. So when we think of friendship in terms of support and companionship and love, it's of no surprise whatsoever that we read in verse 33, and he took Peter, James and John with him. He sought their company because he sought them to be an encouragement, to pray for him and to be with him. If the Lord Jesus needed friends, and particularly at a time like this, how much more so do you and I need friends? Let me ask you a question this morning. Who are your Peter, James and John? Whom do you confide in? To whom do you go to when life is difficult and maybe you have challenging decisions to make? Who do you get advice from? Who do you bounce ideas off? Who in a a, a loving and gracious way would rebuke you because they are a close friend and, and you have a rapport whereby you can do the same thing? Who is it that draws alongside in your life? Many Christians live as islands, you know. Live as islands, come to church, listen to sermons, say hello to everybody, have a cup of coffee and just go off and do their own thing. Yet we don't find anything remotely like that in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's another angle to this as well. We think of friendship in terms of what we get out of it and how we benefit and that of course is important. Have you ever stopped to think, though, the benefit that you may be to somebody else? Christians, I think this is a bad thing. Christians inherently think of how they benefit from everything. Come to church because of what I get out of it. Well, you should get something out of church. But you ever come to church to be an encouragement to other people? To stir one another another up in love and good works? Do you ever think how your life may be an influence for good in the lives of somebody else? You see, the point here is this. Friendship is not only for our benefit. It's for the benefit of others. You may very well be the shoulder that someone needs to cry on. You may very well have the advice that someone needs. You may very well have the the friendship and, and the mannerism and the personality that is 
able to be an encouragement and a source of strength and help to another person. The Christian life is not just about my salvation. I come to church and this is what I get out of the sermon and if I don't get anything, I'm going somewhere else. And that's often how Christians think. We have to continually remind people at Southern Districts, come to church in order to be a blessing. When you stay away because you can't be bothered, that's actually a source of discouragement for others. And the same can be true with regards to friendship. Don't only think of it in terms of what you get, though it should be a blessing to you. Think of it also in terms of what you can give. Jesus had friends and We've got to be very careful when we think of him as the son of God that we don't, in some, we don't in some ways picture him as some kind of superhuman. He was an ordinary man and as an ordinary man he, he coveted, coveted the, the camaraderie of like-minded men. He loved his disciples, he enjoyed their company and as he goes into this most difficult hour he doesn't trudge off on his own, he takes three of them with him in order to be an encouragement, in order to pray. Well, let's move on and note, thirdly, Christ wanted others to pray for him. So he was a man of prayer, firstly. Secondly, um, we see that he uh, looked to friends, and now thirdly, he wanted others to pray for him. Verse 37, Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Now, the apostles were to pray for themselves that they would not enter into temptation. Jesus had prophesied to them that the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would scatter. And so they were to pray for themselves. But uh, they were also to pray for him. In Matthew's gospel, he says, could you not watch with me one hour? In other words, could you not see my anguish and enter into my prayers with me? Could you not do that? Are you really that tired? And this in some ways ties in with the other two points. We need to be people of prayer and to pray for ourselves. We need friends around us. What greater service can our friends provide other than to pray? I mean, they do more than that. But certainly good friends will pray for us. And so in the garden, Jesus was calling upon his disciples to engage in intercessory prayer. And in doing so, he was calling them to do what he had done over and over and over for them. I've made the point that Jesus was a man of prayer. We often find him praying for his disciples. Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Peter, And when you have returned, in other words, when you have repented, strengthen your brethren. I've prayed for you, Peter. I know what's coming and I've prayed. Look at John chapter 17, the the longest recorded prayer that we have of our Lord Jesus. He prays for his disciples. You then make your way through the New Testament epistles and we find repeatedly the apostles praying for the churches. Paul's prayers are frequently recorded in the letters that he writes to them. You know, we are not being a friend, we are not being a faithful Christian if we never look beyond our own needs. And we are not following the example of our Lord Jesus Christ if we are not given to intercessory prayer. 
And one of the benefits that we have with a prayer meeting is that having come and prayed publicly for the needs of the church and for one another, we can then take those issues home with us and continue on in a spirit of prayer. Keep praying for those things. We are to pray. We are to pray for one another. Now, the necessity of intercessory prayer means not only that we are to pray for those around us, but it also means that we must be willing to open ourselves up to other people. The Lord Jesus exposed himself to Peter, James and John. This was no private matter, which he went and hid himself away in the bushes because he didn't want anybody to see. He didn't conceal himself. Here he is, in a sense, we could say at his most vulnerable. And what does he do? He exposes himself to his friends. They see and they hear what's going on. Now, I'd suggest to you that there are things in our lives that we shouldn't share with other people. There are things which are very private and they're only between us and the Lord. Maybe there are some things that we would share with one or two others, but nobody else, and that's wise as well. There are, quite frankly, things that other people shouldn't hear that only you know about, or maybe one or two. But this doesn't mean that Christians should live in a cone of complete secrecy and silence. There is a difference between privacy that is wise, that involves discretion, and secrecy whereby people cut themselves off from others and nobody knows anything about them. How can we pray for people if they hide themselves away and they never expose themselves to anybody? I've been at Southern Districts. It's now pushing up towards two decades. 18 years is coming up. And I've ministered to some of the same people over that whole period. And, you know, there are people in my church, I could count on one hand the things that they've ever asked prayer for. And I've known that they're going through particular issues. I've known important things are coming up and they reveal nothing. That's not how we're to live. We're not to live as islands. Jesus didn't live as an island. You look at the Apostle Paul when he writes to the Corinthians, he explains to them that he's been given a thorn in the flesh. He doesn't tell the Corinthians what that thorn is. He's been afflicted, we're told, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him because of his propensity towards pride. He was open and honest. And surely that information is given to the Corinthians that they might pray. And those letters were circular letters. They were sent out to other churches. Surely Paul would benefit from the prayers of people with regards to the thorn in his flesh. If you remember, he prayed three times that God would remove it. God said to him, no, the thorn will stay. My grace is sufficient. And we need to understand with regards to God's response, that doesn't mean that the thorn became easier. What the grace meant was that Paul would be able to bear up with the thorn and still fulfil his ministry. But whatever that thorn was, it was incredibly painful. Maybe it was the source of embarrassment or some kind of physical affliction. We don't know, but Paul is open about it. And exposes himself in terms of a particular sin that he struggles with. I'd suggest, though, we don't know. This is purely speculative. I'd imagine that Paul did tell trusted colleagues and friends exactly what the thorn was. And they were able to support him and pray for him in that. If Jesus allowed people to get up close and personal 
So they could see and hear what he was going through, so should we. Intercessory prayer is a vital part of a Christian life. And we probably only think of it in terms of praying for others. But for it to work, for it to work properly, people must know something of us. This ties in with being a friend, doesn't it? Friends expose themselves. Friends open up. Friends talk. Friends don't isolate themselves. They don't cut themselves off. If we're to be people of intercessory prayer, we obviously need to pray and we must be willing to expose ourselves, at least to some, if not all. If we don't do both, there won't be intercession. Well, let's wrap things up this morning. The Lord Jesus Christ was not a proud man. He was not self-sufficient. He was not presumptuous. He was not autonomous. He looked to his father and he looked to his friends. He prayed because he needed the fellowship of his father. If there was any time that he needed to draw close to his father, it was at this time. And his father indeed strengthened him. He invited Peter, James and John to witness his anguish because he wanted their companionship and support. He called them to pray because he valued the intercessory prayers of others. He prayed for them. He naturally expected them to pray for him. Now, there are so many lessons. I mean, the Garden of Gethsemane is just packed with lessons. This is a condensed version of several sermons that I preach going through Mark's gospel. There are many lessons. But above all, perhaps this morning, I want us to see the idea of dependency. In the first instance, we need to be dependent upon God. And of course, we are dependent upon God, whether we know it or not. There are people who never look to God and never pray to him. They're still dependent upon him. But if we do understand our dependency and we are committed to serving the Lord and pleasing him, that dependency will express itself in prayer. It's sometimes said that prayer to the Christian, to the soul, is what breath, what air is to the body. If you don't breathe, you're not alive. If you don't pray, you have no reason to regard yourself as a Christian. It's that simple. If you don't pray, there is no spiritual life. Prayer is the evidence of spiritual life. Prayer is a means through which we express our dependency upon the Lord. And then following on from that in the right sense, we also need to be dependent upon others. And I say in the right sense because we, we, we shouldn't rely upon people in a slavish kind of way that's inappropriate or unhealthy, but rather we depend upon others in the sense that we benefit from their input, we benefit from their encouragement, we benefit from their correction, we benefit from their prayers. You know, we're not meant to live as islands. We are part of a body. Now, God made us for himself, and you know, God made us for one another. It's a fascinating thing. We are connected to Jesus Christ, and by virtue of that, we are connected to one another. You know, I am your brother. Every one of you who names the name of Jesus, I am your brother, and you are my brother, you are my sister. We are part of a body. We are not meant to live in isolation, and we should seek to cultivate meaningful relationships with people and to engage ourselves for their benefit as well as for our own.
Friends, Christianity is all about communion, communion with God and then communion with his people. And that's what we see here, communion with the Lord and communion with the Lord's people. Well, may he help us to grow in both of these areas. May he bless these thoughts to our hearts this morning through the ministry of his word. Amen.